0: So what we are going to do is, Pastor Stephen shared on the first part in AM1 and he's going to share on the second part now. And so if you missed part one, please get the podcast. And we ended up on the three particularly uh, prevalent views on the end times. And the end times is something that's kind of sensational amongst most Christians and churches. And I don't know about you, but I grew up in an end time thinking that was... Man, the beast is coming out, the The suffering persecution going to hit you, you better all be afraid, and and then it's all going to get really, really worse, and the church is just going to hang in there in a little corner, and then Jesus is going to rapture us out just before it gets terrible. Hallelujah. <laughs> well, how many of you know that uh, that's not necessarily what the Bible says, and so we want to encourage you to open your minds and change the way you think. And, and Brother Howard came to us after the first service and just shared a little of his heart, and Stephen and I have asked him to share a quick testimony just so that it can help you to frame your mind right as we go into the second session. So Howard, I want to say God bless Brother Howard. He said he would be short because both of us have been short most of our lives.
1: You know, um, I grew up in a very Pentecostal church that held a view on the end times that, that was... Um, today, being challenged in my heart, and and it sounds like what I've believed for thirty years is incorrect. Okay, it sounds like that. I'm we we we're going through the process of evaluating this, and we're going through the process of testing this in our hearts, right? And while I was thinking about what I should say, because I could I could go on. Uh, for a long time, coming from a Pentecostal church so that 's why I promised andrew i 'd be short. Yeah, <laughs> the verse popped into my head, and it 's repeated a few times in the book of revelation and it 's a bit topical, and i 'm probably taking it out of context, so please forgive me, but it says, "He who has ears, let him hear what the spirit is saying and that's and that 's the only thing that i that i that I think i 'd like to encourage everybody is just to listen to what God is saying and the sacred cows that we may have and we've developed and we've clung to for decades in some cases let's just say guys we don't need this let's just ask God to uh, open his heart and reveal his truth of who he is
0: Uh, thank you friend both Howard and I were raised as preachers children and raised very strongly in a particular doctrine and Stephen Herzig is a very good friend of ours. When Carol and I planted the church in Pretoria in 1990-91, uh, we became very good friends. Stephen was planting there at the same time. He's originally British, we, we don't hold that against him. Um, and he's, he's back in Britain, living in Plymouth after living in the US for I don't know how many years. And so he gets around. Um, we we booked Stephen a year in advance. So uh, we, <laughs> we booked him a year ahead for him to come and share this. But Stephen is one of the most, uh, well he's probably the best prophetic teacher I know on many subjects, but particularly this one. And someone who's well-read and understanding in every single one of the approaches. We don't believe as a church that there is only one doctrinal, dogmatic approach and everyone else is out. We believe as a church that we hold to the critical teachings of Jesus Christ. Whatever you can't be certain of outside of that, we hold to Jesus Christ and we don't form dogma about the others. And we want to allow ourselves the freedom to think. Amen. And the problem with the church is that we haven't been encouraged to think. Most most people are kind of thinking we are transformed by the removal of our minds. No, we, we want you to be renewed in your minds. And so, Pastor Stephen... We want to welcome you. He was, he was sharing on, and I think we'll kind of start with previously on Every Nation Church uh just maybe a summary of the, the three views, and then we're going to let Pastor Stephen finish. And as we say, please download both podcasts so that you get the full set. Everyone say, God bless Pastor Stephen.
2: amen. Isn't the presence of God good? You know I I thought it would be good for Howard to share and the one thing that he said when we were chatting after the first session was I wasn't sure I wanted to come because the subject creates certain feelings and it's bound my thinking. Those are kind of his words and I thought know when we when we have a doctrine in our minds that creates darkness fear and concern and we don't want to have to explore it we're concerned about going to listen to more just in case it gets worse you you know that an idea has a stronghold And this is most important because our world views do have a profound impact upon the way we live. And we don't always formulate those completely on our own in isolation under the revelation of the Holy Spirit. We gain those understandings from different places and different sources and And some of them are really, really good. Some of them are not so good. Um, A set of ideas can be good, bad, or ugly. But we can't allow ourselves to be locked into something that generates anxiety and, and fear when it comes to handling of the things of God. Because He came to bring freedom. He came to bring hope. And he came to bring expectation of good to come, didn't he? And in this subject of where the world's heading, uh, we, we need some expectation of good to come. I, I can't remember if I shared this with you last time, but let me just take two minutes to give you an aside. You know, I, when I got saved I joined a ministry called Youth of the Mission, and they are, are, are the most amazing missionary organization about the largest in the world and they've done missions in every nation on earth of one form or another and they have quite a considerable team in the Middle East now but one of the things in those days that we were exercised by was the influence of Islam and the fact that really until until now it's been a darkness, it's been a stronghold that's bound whole communities of people completely and closed down life and imagination and freedom and stratified societies and released all kinds of segregation and anger and just difficult and martyred many Christians of course and over the millennia Islam started in 632 AD With the death of Muhammad. Um, Over the the 1400 years of Islam there have been very very few Muslims finding Christ, very few. It's usually been individuals one at a time but in in the last 25 years 30 years there's been a phenomenal change and that has been catalogued by a number of people this is to bring some home help us to see that we're living in a new era amen um and one of them you can download his book is a chap called david garrison who's an american researcher and he has written a book called the wind in the house of islam and in this book he they became and missiologists and those who are passionate about this area of the world and interested in it, have, have been noticing some, some unprecedented changes. Because I remember in my early years in Youth of the Mission in the 70s, we were praying for Muslim nations quite often. And there were many where there were no known believers at all. And But then in the mid 80s, word came out that there were be- there began to be some significant changes in different parts of the world and they began to notice that many of these changes were not just individuals finding Christ but whole communities often having dramatic visions of Jesus and and including the Imam in their communities and beginning to look at and search out a new way of approaching God and so David Garrison and his team he. Traveled over a quarter of a million miles to research over 20, over 15 years, or the first 13 years of this, of this century, and he went. Their they, the whole team went the length and breadth of, of the House of Islam, and the House of Islam is the expression they use to, do, to define the Muslim world, and it extends from Indonesia, right the way to the Western Sahel in Sahara, Mauritania, and the Western Sahara. And in in their researching, for the sake of of finding evidence and being able to catalogue it accurately, they defined a movement to Christ from Islam to Christianity as being a thousand Muslims in a community or area getting saved and being baptised in the 10 to 20 year period, or a hundred churches being planted and they found that in the, there's only ever been one movement to Christianity from Islam until 1985 and that was in Indonesia in the early 1800s but there has been nothing else all the Muslims who found Christ have been individuals and sometimes families but that's been it and nothing has, has cemented, nothing has changed, nothing has extended to their wider community but in the last 30 years in the last 15 years of the last century, there were 15 different movements to Christ. And in the first 13 years of this century, there were 69 in every single region of the Islamic world. Yeah, it is, it is remarkable. Um, 69 in the first 13 years of this, of this century. And, and in the House of Islam there are different rooms, that includes the Arabic and da-da-da-da. But every single room has, has encountered this change and this dramatic intervention of God. And, the, and he talks about some of the reasons why in his book. Um, I've come up with a few others which I don't have time to tell you, but um, you know that's just the way my mind works. But, but you know we live in unprecedented times because just as during the reformation which comes up to 500th anniversary next year, the, there is a reformation happening in the Muslim world and for very similar reasons um, which I haven't got time to go into now but it should give great hope because this is one last stronghold that is beginning to take in water, if you like, the water of the Spirit, the life of God, and Garrison estimates that up to 6 million people have found Christ in the first t- 13 years of this, this century, um, and it, it, it's unstoppable, it's exponential now, and he talks about why and what we can learn from it and so take heart. Now, Revelation and end time prophecy. I started off in the first session by kind of outlining how we need to approach biblical prophecy which is complex and it's complex because it's all written in ancient languages which we no longer speak that's one of the reasons so it's written in ancient hebrew or coming from a hebrew way of thinking and it's written in ancient greek and they're not they're not languages we use today so we've had to interpret those things and By and large, we've made a a bad job of it in the last couple of hundred years um, because we have lost sight of certain important details. So I started off by saying that when we approach reading prophecy, we need to understand how God wants us to and what is a wise approach to these things um, in our own reading. And number one, we need to recognize that we need to work from the plain to the obscure. So by that I mean, we take scriptures that are obvious, where we know what the, the writer or the author is talking about, and we move to, from there to ones that are more obscure more obscure and less difficult to interpret. Now, the only problem with that idea is that we, for some people things are obscure, <laughs> and for others they're completely obvious. So, but even so, we need to understand that because there are some things that are extremely clear. We need to interpret the New Testament writings through the Old because there is a a seamless transition of understanding. So when we're reading Revelation, many of the symbols, many of the signs, many of the types are already inferred or talked about in the writings of Zechariah and the writings of Daniel especially and some of the other prophetic books. So we need to recognize that. Then we need to go back to what Jesus had to say because actually he talked a great deal about hell and about his second coming but largely we've left that untested and untried because what he said has confused a lot of people because he made certain statements which f- we find difficult to interpret through our particular framework of end time understanding he said that this generation will not pass away until you see the son of man coming in his kingdom he said that in Mark 13 he said to his disciples in another passage and this is repeated in several places and you've probably kind of tripped over this when you've been reading if you've been reading the Bible it's a good idea Um, it's great, it's good Um, he said to his disciples in Mark 9 some of you here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom now how do we interpret this? that is the question and we've kind of found that one difficult, so we've left it alone. And we've, we like the rapture, that's a nice idea because it sets us free from difficulties. So we've kind of jumped to 1 Thessalonians 4 and tried to make a few passages in Revelation say the same thing. And, and, and we, we, we just don't know what to do with what Jesus had to say. But I, I started off by kind of helping you see that what Jesus taught on his own second coming had had an Old Testament precedent because he used language which from a Hebrew, in a Hebrew poetic, graphic language as it was he used language to describe something which we with our scientific Western minds find difficult to grasp he talks about the sun being darkened, the stars falling from heaven he talks about the moon being turned into blood, you know, that, you know, the, you know the phrases he used? He, he talks about coming in the clouds and every eye seeing him so we're not quite sure what all this means but you, will, you can find out if you just read the Old Testament because Isaiah used the same expressions. so did Ezekiel and they use them in, in describing acts of God's judgment upon Babylon and upon Egypt and then we read Joel 2 which Peter quoted so we see that we lack some of that, don't we? We lack some of those bits because it's, you know, old men will dream dreams and young men will prophesy and all that. All on, uh, My spirit will be poured out on all flesh. That bit we love. We love really a lot. But then he says, And <laughs> the stars will fall from the sky, and the sun will be darkened, and the moon will be turned into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Doesn't it? So what Peter quotes... We don't know what to do with quite because we're not sure that that's happened. We're fairly sure it hasn't because we've never seen it and it's never been recorded in history. But actually, we're trying to make a, a symbolic, poetic language into a scientific document. And just ask David, that is not great, right? You know, when it comes to building atomic power stations, you don't use Chaucer or Keats, <laughs> right? <coughs> Right. so, so we, 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 we need to understand what Jesus was trying to say he was saying that within a generation something would happen and we t- he, t- he, he belabored this he talks about the fig tree doesn't he and the fig tree was a symbol of Israel many places in the Bible and then he says within, uh, within this event within, the, within the, a generation the fig tree sprouting a judgment's coming and he was referring to the destruction of Israel in AD 70 and the, the demolition of Jerusalem. And so there has already been a fulfillment of what he said in Matthew 24 and Mark 14 and Luke in a couple of places. Now one of the things I also said is that when we understand prophecy from a Hebrew point of view it's helpful because the Hebrews understood that God paints pictures he doesn't, he doesn't give facts all the time he paints pictures and when he prophesies or speaks through a prophetic spokesman or woman um, he does so in order to prepare people for understanding for revelation not just for the fulfillment of a particular event and our tendency when we approach Old Testament and New Testament prophecy is look f- looking for the event And when the event happens, like Israel returning from Babylon to the land of promise, we tick off the passage and we then close that down. That's all over. That's all history. It's past. And now we move on. But you can't do that with biblical prophecy because God speaks and he wants to give a whole picture. So he speaks and fulfills things cyclically. So there may be several fulfillments of the same prophecy. So that 's very important that we grasp those basic things about New Testament prophecy and then I well, there were a few other things I mentioned, so get the you know get the podcast. I talked a little bit about the three prevailing views of the book of Revelation. One has two parts: the first one was preterist, which basically was the predominant opinion of the whole of the first thousand years of church life. It was particularly. Uh, strongly presented by Augustine and they believe very clearly that uh, the preterist view that the book of Revelation is describing events that happened in the first century that is their main the main focus of of the book of Revelation and one of the things I said earlier about biblical rules of interpretation Especially some types of writing, and I will mention how many there are in the book of Revelation in a minute. But when you, when you have a letter, you cannot remove the context of that writing from the people who were the designed hearers. So when you read the book of Romans, you understand a little bit about what was going on in Rome and Paul's relationship to the church in Rome if you are going to be able to understand what Paul was saying and why. Amen. You know, if you're reading Timothy, you understand that it was written to a person, and therefore there was something very specifically referring to him that was identified by Paul that he needed to hear. So you do not take the scriptures out of context, have a little wine for your stomach because you have numerous ailments, and immediately interpret that's for every Christian all down through history, that was written specifically to Timothy in that particular time because of a physical need that he had. Amen? You know, you know, you can do what you like with the Bible, but please don't take it out of context. Right? So, you know, well, wine is... wine. there are two things that make it straight into heaven without any transformation at all. Wine and cream. You know, <laughs> without any question, cream's going to make it. There's no doubt about it. You know, I'm English. Strawberries and cream. You know, they really work. Um, so that's the preterist view. Then you have the historical view, which came along after after a thousand years and began to be introduced into the church, and, and has some a, a number of people who you would recognise, whose names you know, like Luther and Wesley, who were strongly persuaded of the truth of it. That the revelation is actually a description of all of church history, from the first century right the way through to where where they were then and or where we are now. And the key is to in- interpret the events of revelation with things that have happened in history over that period of time. And the third one we call futurist, which is I've just told you is wrong, <laughs> because it takes things out of away from the original hearer. Futurists would believe and there are two types that the first three chapters of Revelation were for the churches to which it was written but the rest is for the church at the end of history. So it has little or no relevance to the people who were reading it at the time. So whenever you read somebody who's talking about Revelation and they include nuclear war or tanks or ISIS or, you know, Babylon, or Iraq, or, you know, modern-day Europe, and ten nations, and, 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 Well, you can be sure that the Bible actually wasn't directly referring to those things. Right? You got that. Because it was written to people who would have had no understanding of them. I'm going to give you the context in which the book was written in just a minute, because it's significant. But that, those are those are the three views, and the futurist view has two types, two halves. One believed in a positive future, Jonathan Edwards and others, that we are entering in a season of major revival and growth and expansion of the church, and it's going to usher in the millennium reign, and then you know, and Jesus will return. The other was more negative and pessimistic, and I'm g- going to give you a few reasons why I particularly don't like that view. And, you know, when you embrace a view of Revelation and end time prophecy, again, remember, it was written to a people in a particular time in history. It was addressed to them, right? So you're reading their letter, right? It was addressed to them, and it was to give them hope and strength for a time of great challenge that was about to come upon them and the earth, right? and and I will explain what was going on in the Roman Empire at the time because that will also help you see some of the things that the, the, the book um, in talks about so the date of writing I think most biblical scholars today are, are, are unanimous that uh, it was written shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 we don't know exactly but they think around 65 AD, we're not given the date, we're not completely sure it was one of many apocalyptic books or writings that were written there were many people having these grand dreams and visions of end times but it was the one that was put into the canon because it was authored by John the Apostle so its authenticity was vouched for and they felt confident as they formed the canon, that that it was an appropriate book to include for for those reasons. Um, it was it was at, at, in, it was at a time of the di- just prior to the destruction of not just Jerusalem but all of Israel. Because very shortly around that time, very shortly after Revelation was written, Jerusalem was destroyed every stone was removed apart from the wailing wall, that was the only part that was left. All the gold and all the other things were taken out of the temple, were, you know the rocks were pulled apart because the whole structure was burnt and they wanted to extract the gold that had been melted into the cracks and they, they completely destroyed the nation. So the Jews were scattered as a people and by and large no longer lived certainly not in Jerusalem it was salted nobody lived there for many years but they but also from much of the rest of Israel the majority of the Jews left the country and were taken into slavery and many many you know lost their lives as a result Christianity at that point was freed from a geopolitical center so because Jerusalem was destroyed, the Church in Jerusalem was no more, and that allowed the church to become much more mobile in its thinking and much more missional because the Paul had obviously pioneered a whole new movement, but many of the many in the church had stayed rather static, but that allowed and forced them to kind of completely reevaluate who who they really were and what they were fighting for. They were no longer fighting for physical territory for real estate for Jerusalem as it was they were able to separate themselves in their thinking from their history in their past in the, in a wrong sense in a in a in a physically restrictive way and they began to very very proactively take the gospel across the continents there is some evidence that the church reached China by AD 185, 186 and you know I mean that's just 150 years after Jesus's death and that's phenomenal um, so, Rome at that time—it was a city, as you know—that was built on seven hills. So, chapter 17 of Revelation talks about this. Talks about a dragon or a beast with seven, with seven heads and ten horns. You know, you know the one. Yeah, you got it. The beast, seven heads, ten, seven heads, mountains, ten horns, referred to the ten Caesars that that occupied that period of the book preceding and immediately around the time of the writing of the book of Revelation the Caesars were Julius Caesar was the first that's not because he, he didn't start the Roman Empire, it had already begun but, but before Caesar it was a republic so it was governed by a senate but Caesar was the first, Julius Caesar who lived shortly before Christ was the first to declare himself emperor and supreme majesty and lord So there were two issues that the Roman Empire had with the church. They refused to call Caesar Lord, was one. And they they were pacifistic completely. And they refused to put their people into Rome's armies. Very important. Alright, so the first one was Caesar, then there was Octavia or Caesar Augustus. There was Tiberius, there is Gaius, and then there was Claudius. And then there was Nero. And he was around at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, when it was penned. And in 68 AD, he launched the first of a number of waves of persecution against the church, and it was very, very intense. So he came to the throne shortly before Revelation was written, or about that time, and he launched the first Roman persecution of the the Christian church. And it was intense. Many, many were martyred, Uh, he would strap Christians to poles and cover them with pitch and light them. He blamed them for some of his madness. Uh, He set fire to Rome as a backdrop to some of his poetry and burnt a third of the city. And he blamed the Christians for it and there was a a very severe and intense season of persecution against the Christian church. Um, But then after that, after after him there was a season of great instability there. in one year 68-69 AD there were four Caesars so that makes up the ten so in the period up to AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed and it was destroyed by two men Titus originally and then Vespasian. so Titus led the first attack against and it took three years for them to destroy the nation AD 70 Jerusalem uh, was it was about a year siege and many hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives and Josephus talks about it very graphically in his book in his history and then they moved to where a, a, a group of zealots had taken over Herod's temple on a palace on Masada and, and that, that is at the top of a mountain down by the Dead Sea so it's you know like like you know a thousand meters climb to the top of this and he had built a whole palace with huge with huge uh, places to store water cisterns to store grain and the Zealots were able to hold out against Rome for three years until they used Jewish labor to build a ramp all the way up the side of this mountain and then when they got to the top everyone jumped off the edge or were killed by their own fellow countrymen or jumped off the edge of of Masada and and died. It was only a hundred or so were left but they'd held out for three years and so we, we, we have this complete scattering of a nation, a distraction of a people and it's into that context that, that the book of Revelation is written Vespasian later comes back from his, from his defeat of Israel and the scattering of the country and he became the next Caesar and then they entered a, a period of greater peace so where you have Revelation talking about a beast with seven heads and ten horns you know exactly, and one who kind of takes out another, because Nero wasn't a very pleasant chap. He had his own wife murdered. Um, he had a few of other p- of his close friends bumped off. Um, he, you know, he. So you know, he had him speaking loud things, ins- you know, insulting things, mocking God, mocking things. That's who he was referring to. And in fact, some people have gone as far as to interpret 666, which is a number in Aramaic, as Caesar Nero in Aramaic, because they didn't use numbers as we do in their numerical chart. They used letters like the Roman alphabet did, and so they would take a a letter from the the Aramaic alphabet and attach a numerical figure to it and when you, you turn 666 from Aramaic into, into language that we might understand because it's called an, a number of man um, Caesar Nero was directly mentioned so, um, so that is the context in which the book of Revelation was written and its main types of writing, it's obviously apocalyptic that means it speaks of the future it's anticipating something to come Secondly, it has just straight literary prose in it. It is a letter, and it also has psalms in it. There are many songs in the book of Revelation, at least six or eight that I counted just the other day when I was just taking a glance, and some of them we sing. We sing the song of the Lamb. And, you know, some of the great pieces of music have been written out. Handel took Revelation and talks about blessing and honor and glory and power and wisdom that's straight out of one of the songs that was sung before the throne in the book of Revelation so the themes of the book are four or five fold. first of all it sets out very clearly that it is an unveiling of Jesus Christ now bear in mind who wrote it John was Jesus' most intimate friend on the cross he turns, Jesus turned to John, and Jesus' mother is standing there, and he says to John, John, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. And then it makes the point from that day, John took Mary into his own home as his own family. He was the one who had the most intimate and close relationship with Jesus. But nothing prepared him for what he saw in Revelation 1, right? When he sees the resurrected Christ in all his glory, he falls at his feet as though dead. And all the emotion, all the intimacy, all the closeness, all the familiarity, well, that is blown away by the glory and the greatness. And... Jesus reveals himself through this whole book, doesn't he? We sang some of the songs today. You know, who is worthy to open the scroll and to read the writing that is written on it? And only the lamb slain, who is of the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah of of David, and it talks about who he is and the greatness of his rule and that all the efforts of rome and the tyranny of oppressive empire spirit is not going to overcome that which we that which we see in him because he's preparing his army he rides on a white horse and he's training he's training riders here <laughs> you know that's what we're called we're called to ride with him and we're called to be to be ones who stand with him to conquer and to bring about the transformation of the world in which we live, to restore it to original intent. You know, the Bible, it, it has two bookends. Bookends are really good because they keep all the rest of your books on your shelf in place. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 22. And it starts in a garden with a river with a family and trees and it ends in a garden with a river with families and trees and the story in between is God's redemption so that we can be in the garden that's, that's the story and God wants us to have hope and expectation he's not, he's not coming clandestinely it's not going to get increasingly darker although it will but the light will shine brighter so going back to he's coming in the clouds and every eye will see him Joel 2 right? he calls out a remnant so the good part the old men will dream dreams and the young men will prophesy and and the gospel will be preached to the poor and every eye will see him. The good part is the remnant called out who are going to shine brighter and brighter. So there will be increasing confusion and the leaders of the world will not have the answers and they will recognize that their strategies and their their plans and their best laid, made efforts and their they're saving for a rainy day and their economic policies. They really aren't going to survive the shaking. And they will recognize this, but God is calling out a remnant. So he wants us to, to rain, maintain a positive expectation of good to come. And we don't need to be rescued because he's empowering his church to be a part of that army. And we see that in the book of Revelation. So all this is a part of revealing him his glory, his majesty, his greatness because remember his first coming was a suffering servant his second coming will be as a conquering king and the two are very different the first coming was the lamb slain the second coming is as the line of the tribe of Judah in the spirit of David to rule, to govern and to drive out the oppressing nations and to cause all men to bow a knee amen so this that is the first thing The second thing is to give comfort to a persecuted church as we've mentioned before um, then the book of revelation tells us very clearly now I'm just going to quickly turn to chapter 22 but in chapter one it also says this it also says the same thing but we said it's written in in symbolic language so it's drawn from the Derek Morphew who's done a whole study on Revelation and I've listened to his tapes ages ago or whatever it was that he did Um, he said it's rather like you've written a book in code and the code the the code that helps you understand it is the prophetic writings of the old covenant and understanding something about biblical numerology because none of the in my view none of the, the numbers in the book of Revelation are literal they're all symbolic So the Lamb has seven eyes. Is that literal? Or is it symbolic? It's symbolic. Right? Meaning that Jesus is all-seeing and all-knowing. Right? We have the seven spirits of God. They're not necessarily literally seven spirits, but the Holy Spirit takes on seven characteristics. And reveals himself in seven different ways and that's found in the book of Isaiah just so you know um, but here we see in chapter 22 he says he says this uh, these things these verse 6 these words are faithful true and true and the Lord the God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show to his bondservant the things which must shortly take place behold I am coming quickly verse 10. For the time, do not seal the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is near. 12. I am coming quickly. He who testifies, verse 20, to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. Right? So he says several times in the book of Revelation that this is immediate. The book is to be unsealed, whereas the book of Daniel was sealed. And that is in chapter 8 of the book of Daniel. And the one thing that was sealed in the book of Revelation were the thunders. Because they were not for then, they are for another te- period. right? Which may be now. <laughs> so ask for some revelation on the thunders, but don't please, don't, you know, you might, you might get it. But it's got to be in theme with the rest of the book which is giving hope to the saints, which is resurrect, raising up the, the, the supremacy of Christ, giving an under, unveiling of who he really is in his kingship, in his glory, in his manish, majesty in his rulership, and uh, helping us to see how he's going to bring a judgment upon the, the winds of heaven, upon the, those who are raised up against him, about, against empire spirits, against those who bring tyranny, about those who trade illegitimately, and the whole of the book of chapter 17 and 18 is really about illegitimate trade in Babylon and if you don't think that that's still around ask people who lost money in 2008 I met an American who lost quarter of a million dollars out of his pension in 2008 so there is, there is a shaking of the systems of this world and the things that have raised themselves up against the supremacy and the Lordship of Christ and in, that is really what the book of Revelation is about to help us gain a fresh understanding of that so when things do get difficult our hope rises we lay a hold of that which God has given to us and we uh, we rejoice in his goodness so it is a message in the in the in this age in the age of in the inauguration of Messiah Lord Christ he had come as servant, he is now king, he is now ruling and reigning, and he will bring down the empire spirit of Rome and bring judgment upon it now if you read if you read chapters seventeen and eighteen and the harlot and the beast and and the tr- illegitimate trade, it is scary because those are the days we've lived with, but we particularly live in now, extreme wealth in the hands of a few. Um, and it ends up with uh, people trading in human souls. That's human lives. That's slavery. And if you, don't think, if you think that's been abolished, you are misguided. It is just as prevalent as it always has been, even despite Wilberforce and some of my early relatives fighting to change laws in the British Parliament. So, the Book of Revelation has a, a particular structure. Um, it has, uh, as I've mentioned, it has seven seals. that The lamb breaks, and then certain things happen. Judgments come. It has seven trumpets. The last seal that's broken, a trumpet sounds, and seven angels step forward, and they blast seven trumpets, which is judgments. Then it has seven bowls of wrath, which is more judgments, and it has seven thunders, and we don't know what those are. So it ha- has these various descriptions and there's a great deal of parallel between those judgments and the judgments that God brought on Egypt when he led Moses out of and the nation of Israel out of Egypt. A, a lot of similarities. Okay? Judgment on water, judgment of, of, of animals that are, are destructive, frogs and f- gnats and fleas, while in Revelation it's scorpions. And, 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 you know, there's a great deal of parallel because God's judgments, as I said, written in Hebrew, come from that mindset, from that worldview, very graphic, very full of imagery, very poetic, not scientific, right? Now, this, is not, this is not tanks, beloved. The scorpions of Revelation are not ISIS tanks, just in case you were wondering. Um, so, they, they, are, they are symbolic and it's to help us understand that there is conflict, we have an enemy, but we will prevail. Amen? So there's a lot about prevailing, a lot about overcoming, and so on. So then we go on to, um, let me just say this about Revelation as well. Some, some good scholars that I've read divided into four parts. There is a prologue, which is the first chapter, and then you, re- you really can go through to chapter 3 with the prologue because it's Christ being introduced in all his glory and his brilliance, a completely overwhelming John the Beloved with, with what he sees. Then, then there is the outlining of this letter, and that's really good to look at, those letters, because they're not written, to, in my view, to specific churches at a, only to, at a particular time. They are written for all the church of history, right? And to guard, help us guard against certain errors, and to claim certain blessings, because each one ends with the instruction to overcome, and to have an ear to hear. Right? So we need to be overcomers to lay a hold of the promises, which are all back to the garden. They're a tree of life. Right? (laughs) They're drinking from the river. That's what the promises are. And you know, blessings of wealth and health and life, all in those, those books and those promises to those various churches. So then, then, then you have chapter 7 until to, to chapter 12. And that is where the, the, trump, the seals are broken the trumpets sound. And that, those passages talk, um, it's rather like you're watching a play. And you're in the, in the audience and the play is, the drama is unfolding on the stage, so you see the the actors and you see the the theme of the drama unfolding and the the plot beginning to, to express itself, and then then you come back the next day and the director takes you behind the scenes for the next next chapters from chapter 13 to chapter 21, he takes you behind the scenes and you see some of the spiritual forces that are at work and some of the things that are influencing the, aff- the affairs on earth, the empires and the things that rise and fall, and the anger and the, the things that, that mankind direct against Christ and against his church, and the martyrdom and all those other things. So you see, you see that, that, that behind-the-scenes understanding, which gives you a much greater uh, f- whole picture of what is actually going on. Then you have a, a, an epilogue which is chapter 22 where the curtain comes down and, and, and we and God dwells amongst his people, which is what he did, well, in Genesis 2, wasn't it? He walked with Adam in the cool of the evening. Yeah? Right? And that's what our hearts long for. You know, the veil to be torn. When, when you read about tearing of veils, beloved, God doesn't tear veils nicely. His his name is Baal Perez, the God of the breakthrough. And when Jesus was being baptized, he tore the heavens apart. When you think of the Holy Spirit as a dove, please don't think of some nice little white thing that can fit on your hand. I believe there was this massive dove that came down out of this rent heaven. because there was a tearing and when he tore the curtain it wasn't just sweet and nicely you know a few of the priests were there they would have had a shock because there was a rending this tall this <laughs> is this tur- curtain which was tall I mean it was a new temple that Herod had built and you know it was torn separating the holy place from the holy of holies so the Holy Spirit, presence of God, could be released on all mankind. So Joel 2 could come, right? Amen? So we see then that, that you, know, you can read it that way. It's a number of descriptions of the same events, looking at them from different perspectives. Just like Genesis 1 and 2 are the descriptions of creation, but taken from a different point of view it's one creation, two descriptions. Revelation is one set of events but a lot of different ways of looking at it to help you understand what's coming about. Alright? and what is ultimately going to happen. Now I mentioned earlier and I'll close with this because we are now running out of time Um, there are a number of the three principal versions or views were Preterist which you may have gathered is the one that I principally would engage with. Um, that does not mean just because there's been a fulfillment that there won't be others because we've been told that the, the, tr- the, the thunders are sealed. So there's something that is still going to come about later at a, at a later stage. Um, we we are n- weren't given any indication when that would be but we are told that some aspects of what John saw we are yet to see right so just because something has had a fulfillment doesn't mean it won't have many others and the lessons that the early church were being given and the encouragement they were being given and the things that they were being helped to see about the greatness of christ remember he had come as a suffering servant they had seen him die they knew he was risen from the dead but they had not fully seen his glory. Even the, even the disciples who had seen him taken up into heaven with angels, they, 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 they hadn't really seen the heavens rendered. And the glory that he now, and the power and the authority and the majesty that he now exercised, having sat upon the throne, right? And been given jurisdiction, authority, mandate over all authorities over all kings over all nations over all principalities right so they hadn't seen that so this was a great unveiling to give them hope to give them a confidence that even though they were entering into a time of great difficulty they were going to be able To rise victorious they were going to be able to overcome as they were exhorted in the beginning in the the seven churches of Asia and they were going to see Christ come in all his greatness in all his beauty in all his majesty and bring all authorities into subjugation under his rule and under the rule of the people of God because we will ride out with him conquering and to conquer amen So that is really the theme and the the thing that Revelation is trying to inspire in a a people who are about to head into intense challenge and difficulty. So, um, So the historical view, as I've mentioned, there were three, a couple of particular difficulties. It was highly Western in its orientation. So it tended to be looking for fulfillment in Western nations of the things that were prophesied in the book. It was also it's also very difficult to be objective to work out what period of history or what event in history is, is mentioned or referred to in Revelation as you go through it there are some fairly obvious things that you can draw but there is much that you can't and who is to tell where you should start with that process so there are some difficulties with the historical view although there are some great men of God who believed it over the years then we have we come to the positive futurist view which we are which we are heading into a millennium because God is going to pour out his spirit and he's going to come and rule and that's absolutely wonderful and great which was Jonathan Edwards opinion um, I, my personal opinion really is that we're in the millennium now that Jesus came he saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning he made it quite clear that he came to introduce a new kingdom. He preached that; that was his primary message. He only mentioned church twice, and he didn't mention his people once, so or even every nation, for that matter. Um, so um, he 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 was he was quite clear that he came to bring and to be the forebear, to be the pioneer, to be the Crack units to be the, the you know the SAS the, the the Army Seals to prepare and to bring to begin to bring kingdom to earth and to 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 through his death and resurrection to sow the seed of a new kingdom and to release his disciples to bring that message to the world to all nations. So my personal feeling, but you know again, millennium is only mentioned once in the whole Bible. So your salvation is not going to hinge on what you believe on this one. So I'm, you know, a positive historical view is perfectly acceptable to me. The one I have particularly difficulty with is is the pessimistic view. Now you need to understand that this is only 150 years old. A little bit more. And the history around it is very insightful and I'm going to take a couple of moments if you don't mind just explaining it to you. Um, <clears throat> it, it was born out of American, the American Second Great Awakening and that there were a number of well-known and respected preachers during that time one of them being Charles Grandison Finney who preached a great deal in the northeast of America and his methods were different he was the first one to employ altar calls he had a whole front row of a church was reserved for people who came under emotional conviction while he was preaching and they would walk out of their seat and come and take one of the seats at the front of the church and he placed a great deal of emphasis on having an an encounter with God to change your heart so there was a certain emotional dramatic intervention of God that he encouraged people to seek after some almost went mad seeking for it. Um, some did um, but that's not to say that his his life and his ministry and his message didn't have a profound effect but it, it, they became more and more extreme in pursuing and seeking after experience and decision moved by emotion to the extent that the area of northeast England where he started preaching and where others followed became known as the burnt out land because there had been so many moves of God and there were whole campsites set up where houses were built where people would just go and seek for hours and hours and many would have profound experiences but into that, the error crept in and the Seventh-day Adventists were born in that Uh, that period, in that area, the Jehovah's Witnesses were born through Russell in that period, in that era and so were the Mormons. They also were born in the same area, in the same time out of the same type of foundation of of, over-emotionalism, of specific individual calling and destiny, of in that sense Thinking you exceptionalism, thinking that I'm an exception. And it led, well, Russell, for example, he was tried in America in the High Court and found guilty of fraud because he didn't know a word of Greek. And yet he translated the New Testament into English. Which many people don't know, but it's true. and I could mention a few things about Joseph Smith, but we don't need to go there. So the point I'm trying to make is that there were these four, three or four major, ma- major deceptive movements that grew out of the, Re- the Second Great Awakening in America out of exactly the same part of the country. Mormonism was then moved to uh, Salt Lake City under the leadership of Brigham Young. But um, Joseph Smith, I think, later moved. He had six wives there was a certain measure of immorality in his life, to put it mildly. But then that movement spread across the Atlantic to Britain and that's where two figures emerged that had a particular impact upon um, this, this doctrine. The one was a woman called Mary MacDonald who in 1830 had a vision during a meeting and it was one of those kind of hyped up meetings, rather dramatic, and she had a vision of the church being taken away and a man by the name of Darby got a hold of this and Darby was uh, a, a preacher, he was a, a clever gentleman uh, in the Plymouth Brethren and he was given a, a, a platform in America by a chap called Miller who led a large Baptist church in the States and Miller was, took people who really needed some help and discipleship and one of those was Schofield and he discipled Schofield and Mel and and Darby came up with an idea that the Bible actually is written in dispensations they're different periods of history and you need to be discerning of what period we're in because some of it's not written for the church it's written for the Jews and it led to huge confusion so they didn't believe that the Sermon on the Mount was for the body of Christ because that's for the new kingdom and that's when Jesus comes and he's already taken the church and we'll be living it naturally the Jews need to hear that message and and there were various other things that crept in in understanding of, of God doing different things in different seasons of history, now there is some truth in that but there was not to the extent that he took it and he was the one who really propagated the teaching that Jesus was going to come and take his church away and that we needed to be ready and don't watch out because you know you don't want to be left behind right? But do you know who he takes? Jesus does not, he said so. Now this is where the problem starts. If you take Paul's teaching, you don't need chapter 5. And you ignore Matthew 13, you have a problem. Because in the parable of the wheat and the tares, it's quite clear who Jesus takes. He takes the tares. And he says quite clearly, even Paul in, Philipp, in, in Thessalonians in chapter 5, he says, "We are not of darkness; that the sh- thief should overtake us. We are of the light and of the day. Therefore, put away the deeds of darkness; put on the armor of light." And da 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 da. Right? So, you know, the Derby didn't get that far. Maybe that was for the Jews and not for the Christians. But you know, he because he cut the Bible up into sections, and some's relevant and some isn't. But, but so we, we see that the, the pre-trib pessimistic premillennial view of futurist view of Revelation was born out of some very, very spurious roots. Ones which have caused a great deal of question for me, personally, and a great deal of error was sown into the body of Christ out of that part of America at that time, and, and pre-trib notion of the end times is one of them now i if you if you've been brought up in that as many many dozens have uh, hundreds most of pentecostalism and early charismatic church was brought up under that and it's really only recently we've begun, begun to come into an understanding of kingdom that we are re-examining these things in a, in a much more intense and direct manner which is a very good thing But, you know, if you are on a journey of rediscovery, start with the teachings of Jesus. Matthew 13 and the parable, the wheat and the tares, is a very good place to begin. Because he's quite clear about how it's going to happen. You know, and nobody preaches on that passage when it comes to end times. (laughs) And, and, you know, Jesus knows it's going to be difficult and so he gets his disciples to ask what does this mean so he gives you a fairly good commentary on what he meant by the parable so you won't be under any, any, any doubt he says the reapers are the angels he says the good seed are the children of God the sons of the kingdom the bad seeds are the sons of the evil one and they both grow together so we live in the period where we're growing together so our job is not to kind of be separated out and hive off into little holy communities on the edge of the city. Our job is to be amongst the people. right? And then, and then he says, at the end of the age, I'll send out my reapers, the angels, and they'll gather out of the righteous all the wicked. So it's the tares that get taken, not the, not the wheat. Have you, ever, have you never, never seen that? You know, you know, the tares are taken, not the wheat. And where are they taken? Well, they're burned. What does that speak of? Heaven? Glory? No. It speaks of the word that Jesus always used for hell. Gehenna, which was Kidron Valley, which was the rubbish dump where there were always fires, where there were, where there were all the vultures and all the other things gathered. And that's the picture Jesus always used when he referred to hell. And he talks about it a lot. Right? So it's not the righteous that are taken. He then says the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. So they stay right where they are and just bring salvation and redemption to a a broken world. Amen? So that is how things conclude. And that, in my view, is how we are encouraged to read this great book and understand future prophecy. Of course, it meant something to the people. It does mean something to us. But we can't make it mean something would have been nonsense to them because it was a letter written to particular people in a period of history to give them hope, to give them expectation, to give them strength so that they could overcome the uncertain, difficult times they were heading into. Amen. O me. Glory to God.
0: When you consider... That the church is meant to rule and reign become more and more glorious have more and more influence you can see why the enemy doesn't want the church to know this message stephen mentioned a little bit more in the first but some of you may have been raised on the schofield reference bible schofield was basically the one who took darby's teachings to a whole new level if you have a schofield bible in your home send it to gehenna but friends out, out the notes <laughs> no the bible is fine the bible is fine he made it look like his notes and the bible were the same thing but friends we're not here to pull things apart we're here to hear truth and the truth is that we are meant to rule and reign we're meant to become more glorious we're meant to reveal king of kings lord of lords We're not meant to be looking at the world and, oh, how terrible it's getting. We look at the world and we go, well, that's what the world does. The world's evil. We are the salt and light. And if the meat's going off, then there's not enough salt doing its work. And we need to get rid of this whole mindset that the enemy's painted. Why should the church try polish brass on a sinking ship? That is what I grew up in, in Methodism. Forget about just the charismatic Pentecostal denominations. And this message has been destroyed by the Holy Spirit today. 20 years ago, this was, if you stood up and taught against that 20 years ago, I think you'd have been burnt at the stake.
2: Yeah, they got me preaching on Revelation 20 years ago, Dear his people, so I, I had a few interesting comments from people afterwards. <laughs> but
0: friends, whenever you get something to that extent that becomes such a stronghold, that brings fear, pessimism, i used to go from church to church when i was a a pastor in the methodist church showing the movie a thief in the night so that people would get saved out of terror of being left behind and then we have the left behind series how many of you got into that what what nonsense (laughs) guys it's yeah yeah and we're not here to knock we're here to say what is truth what are we meant to be let's be what we're meant to be amen I wanna thank you for sticking it out a little longer. We wanted to get the fullness of this message. I know you guys sacrificed a few more minutes. Thank you. I mean you're gonna we're gonna have all eternity. What's fifteen minutes, right? Why do people keep looking at their watches in church? But if they go extra time in a soccer match, it's like woo, we get more for our money. Come on, we need to change our mind. I know that your chicken some of your chickens are burning, but that's okay. Um, there is a, a YouTube uh Teaching that goes into a little more depth. I want Stephen to just uh, give you the details of that as well for those who want more.
2: There is there. Look, I was going to mention that, but it just was one of those things that didn't get mentioned. If you want to read a good commentary on Revelation, Hendrickson's is the, I think, the best. It's called More Than Conquerors. It was pretty much the first commentary that William Hendrickson wrote, and he is a very respected American theologian of the last century. There is a YouTube series by a chap called Bruce Gore, G-O-R-E I think, and he is a Presbyterian. I'm fairly persuaded from the way he talks about it, that he has changed his views over time, which is always a good indication. He is a highly clever man, he teaches at big Sunday schools and universities in America, so he hardly uses a note. Um, it doesn't seem to me, but that's great. But he he does ten a tenfold a ten part series on Revelation, not so much going through it, but looking at the the history of interpretation and where they all come from and some of the background at each stage of the way. So it's a, it is a very helpful. It's a very helpful series to watch, and it's, you know as Sunday American Sunday School. So it's about forty minutes each session
0: amen friends let's remember that even if you go study that the enemy wants you to get obsessed with the end times he wants you to be obsessed with what's going to happen the second coming of jesus we are meant to be obsessed about jesus loving him loving the people he created spreading the good news The Holy Spirit's job is not to be telling us about the second coming. It tells us the Holy Spirit's job in Revelation is to prepare the bride. So what is He doing? The Holy Spirit wants to prepare us to be more in love with Jesus, to be a better bride. And so let's not get fixated on the distractions. Let's know truth, but let's know Jesus who is truth. Amen.